Students' Union, The Scoop, on Sunday. Hello there, my name's Thomas Copeland, this is The Scoop on Sunday, and we're live this evening from the Students' Union here at Queen's. On tonight's show, after three days of strike action this week, we're chatting to student journalists from universities across the UK about how the students' unions where they are have handled these strikes, have they supported them, opposed them, or somewhere in between. The emergence of the new COVID variant, Omicron, has caused reaction from governments around the world. I've been chatting to student journalists on the ground in the US, New Zealand and Australia to check out what COVID restrictions are in place where they are and what new measures their governments have introduced in response to this new variant. And a union representing headteachers here in Northern Ireland has suggested that schools should close early this Christmas due to acute staff shortages caused by COVID. We'll be discussing that proposal and looking at what's happening in Northern Irish schools with the president of the Secondary Students Union of Northern Ireland. It's all here on The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for your company tonight. Contact us now. Text 07848866580. Email thescoop at queensradio.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, so this week, university staff across the UK undertook three days of strike action between Wednesday and Friday of this week. Here at Queen's, a student referendum took place at the end of last month. At first, the students' union here were neutral in that referendum, although they then changed that policy to supporting the strikes. The results of the referendum were over 80% in favour of the students' union supporting the strikes on a turnout of just under 7%. So this week, student union officers have been out on the pickets outside the Lanyon building here at Queen's. But what about the rest of the UK? How have other students' unions handled these strikes? Well, with me to chat more is Alex Gibbon from the Griffin at the University of Leeds and Ellen Knight, head of news at Burn FM and an editor at Red Brick at the University of Birmingham. Thank you so much both for being with me. Um, Ellen, why don't we kind of start with you? Because Birmingham took a, an approach that was not too dissimilar from Queen's. A student referendum took place. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. No, we had a student referendum um, a couple of weeks ago, just before the strikes kicked off. And so we decided to hold a student referendum because we had a bit of legislation come to place back in early 2020, where we had a student body vote to decide how the Guild handles um, industrial action. Because, of course, I'm sure you'll remember back in early 2019, we had a lot of weeks that were disrupted by strikes, certainly in Birmingham. Um, so eventually there was this decision in early 2020 to support industrial action unless instructed otherwise by a referendum which is what we had carried out a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the results of the referendum was on the quorum. We had to have a quorum of 2,000. And we got a turnout of 2,085. Um, and we got a 78% yes vote, uh, 20% no vote, and a 2% abstain. So it's a very poor turnout, I would say. Um, I mean, given there's nearly 40,000 students at Birmingham, um, for a kind of less than 5%. Yeah. But. Would that be kind of standard at Birmingham when you look at the likes of student union elections, those kind of turnouts, or was it a particularly low turnout even by by the standards of the university at large? I think it was, a, I mean, given that we scraped through the quorum, I think it was a particularly bad um, turnout. I mean, there were 85 people between the vote not counting. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it did count, which was great, but it's like less than 100 people. Um, and it's not, which hasn't really often been an issue before. We're not always trying to get to the quorum, but this has been an issue where it's sort of it's not been a hot topic that people really want to vote on. It's not as glamorous as the Guild Officer yeah. elections. Um, but it's not a great turnout. And then, of course, this turnout 
is seen to be really high. So it's 70, nearly 80 percent. Um, and we're getting there's getting a lot of praise from the university and colleges unions who are saying, look at this overwhelming vote. But it's less than five percent of students. And, and I don't think it personally, from what I've seen from other people, I don't think it completely, I don't think 80 percent of students yeah voted that way so it's a, bit, a little bit well there's crazy. always this problem i suppose in universities alan before we get on to see what what leads leads did and there's always this problem at universities i suppose where you get you know the most engaged people and then you've got the rest of the student body yeah. is your feeling then that this you know the results of the referendum were disproportionate or not entirely representative of you know if you enforced in, in voting on, on the entire student body yeah, I mean, there are obviously some really strong supporters. There's like a pressure group kind of called Solidarity UOB, which is promoting student self-solidarity. And they've been really active. You know, they were leading our yes campaign, but we didn't have a no campaign. There was no people campaigning for no. There was no group campaigning for abstain. There was only a yes campaign that claimed funding from the Guild. Um, so Is that how the debate took place then, <laughs> Ellen? I mean, typically, I suppose what happened here at Queen's is there were there was at least a, a you know a debate between the two sides. There was a little yeah. bit of money went out from the university in terms of mm. in terms of posters and, yeah. and, and advertising on social media. How did the referendum kind of campaign take place in Birmingham? I mean, I fairly low key. I think yeah. it's difficult to notice that what one was really happening, given that there was no uh, conflict. There was no there was, given that there was no official no campaign. There was just a yes campaign. So we obviously there were lots of posters um around and about sort of the guild, especially saying, you know, support your lecturers, vote yes, but nothing for no, nothing for abstain. Yeah. So it's kind of really difficult to see an argument there because okay. there wasn't much of a campaign at all. Okay. Well then we get to the point, I suppose, that the student mm -hmm. union has taken a position where it's supporting the strikes. Let's bring in Alex. Yeah. Alex, thanks so much for being with me. Uh Leeds University Union took a different approach to these strikes to other issues across the UK, I suppose most other issues across the UK, I should say. Tell us what happened in Leeds. Yeah, well, the decision that was came to by LUU, the Leeds University Union, was a controversial one, to say the least. Um, after kind of several rounds of consultations, as they describe it, with students, um, they came out with a statement a couple of weeks ago saying that they will not be supporting the strikes. Uh, this is a, a quite different uh, approach from what they've done in previous years, which is usually stay neutral, and focus on supporting students during industrial action. But this time they said, no, they, we don't think this is, this is what the students want. This is not in the best interests of uh, our union members. And we're gonna take a, take a negative stance on this. Um, and yeah, it caused a lot of stir and a lot of uproar, especially on social media, especially on Twitter. Um, and I think the main reason for that is because a lot of students felt like they were spoken for rather than spoken to. Um, so it's, been a, a hot topic and i know you know strikes are meant to be disruptive but i think it's <laughs> sort of felt spikier than ever this year yeah. on campus well let, let me ask two questions then alex i suppose uh, you're saying there that some students felt like they were being spoken for what were the nature of the kind of consultations that you, you said leeds university union had were, were they very expansive and then i suppose what's your take on why this time leeds union decided to uh, sort of to, to not be neutral to instead decide to actually oppose the strikes and make that a public position well i've requested some of uh, the official data on <laughs> what exactly happened and what the consultations were i haven't received that yet unfortunately um but purely based on conversations i've had with exec officers and that kind of thing um i think they spoke to school reps i think they kind of hosted uh, kind of drop-ins and that kind of stuff and try to do focus groups and that sort of thing. However, the reality is 
there are 48,000 students on our campus at our university. Um, and the, the I'd like to know the, the proportion of those that actually open union emails, uh, which is probably very, very slim. So I think you can do as much consultation and as much um, conversations and speaking to this person, speaking to that person as you like. But without a referendum, um, which is obviously what kind of what both your universities have done, without a referendum to actually have a foundation of a basis of a position to say this is what our members think, um, you're always going to run into that issue of, how do you know this is what this is the majority opinion? How did you come um, to that conclusion? Is there a difference as well in Leeds in the same way that we're maybe exploring there being at Birmingham, Alex, between the most kind of politically engaged students and the wider student body? Is there a really big division there? Or, uh, I mean, what, what would your take be? As we talked about with Ellen, what would your take be on the aggregate opinion, the general opinion of the entire yeah. student body? Well, I think this year it's more split than ever before. Uh, I was, you know, I've worked with, uh, I was working with Elaine Dunkley, who's like the education correspondent for the BBC um, on the strikes this week. And she said, yeah, two years ago, you could not find a student who was opposing the strikes. It was so difficult to find anyone who would speak to me with an opposing view. She didn't have that problem this time. Um, I think obviously it's to do with COVID. I think obviously a lot of international students don't support the strikes. Um, but I, in my opinion, the, the majority opinion of students, which is, the, probably the kind of, I've got to say something I was guilty of as an undergraduate myself, is sort of soft support of the strikes. So, yes, we, we good luck UCU. We're fine missing lectures for three days. You know, best of luck. Hope you get somewhere. But not necessarily join you know joining the picket line or lobbying for change for the university um, not necessarily understanding as well that um what crossing the picket line is and attending lectures that aren't cancelled how that you know may constitute uh kind of siding with university management um i think that's the majority opinion really on campus ellen yeah. does that sound similar um, to birmingham yeah, I mean, that's what exactly what I was going to say. I think like some of, I mean, some of the most politically engaged, like national politics, politically engaged people I know didn't vote because, I mean, maybe our referendum wasn't pushed enough. Maybe they didn't feel, I mean, I think there's a, quite a big sense of apathy um, and kind of just like resignedness from a lot of students, certainly in final years. I mean, like us final year art students don't have that many contact hours to miss. So over three days, it, people are just like, oh, fine, whatever. It's three days. So if they then sort of translate that kind of apathy to their referendum, then people might not take the step to vote because they just feel like fine three days off whatever and then we'll go back to work on monday and it'll all carry on again and it'll all happen again in the spring do you think that's so, increased I, yeah. apathy ellen from when yeah. sort of the last round of strikes took place i'm trying to think back so we're, we're looking at the start of 2020 end of 2019 i yeah. suppose at that stage you would have been in your first year or so i mean yeah. do you is, is there a change is there a change in apathy since then yeah, I think so. Maybe apathy isn't the right, right word. Maybe more sort of resignedness. Yeah. I mean, I think perhaps that's also might be the difference between being a final year and being a first year, is that you are a bit more apathetic in your final year. But um, I think certainly in our first year, I sort of, you know, making conscious efforts not to cross picket lines, sort of being very, feeling very much in solidarity with the lecturers. But I think the general feeling now, certainly at Birmingham, certainly from people I've spoken to, and that's not to say I've spoken to all 40,000 people on campus, but I think people are just a bit more exhausted and just, just want to get their education and I think there's been a lot of chat on um well Brumfest which is our like our, I'm sure every uni's got one aisle anonymous confessions board um just people being a bit frustrated and so sort of there's a lot of talk now about value for money with their education which I think was again as you say was raised by the pandemic so I think it's been something that's been exacerbated by the pandemic and I think people just feeling a bit worn out and just wanting to go to uni really and I suppose part of this is that you know, this is three days of strike on this side of mm -hmm. Christmas and the UCU have said that they are planning 
uh, further strike action to take place on the other side of Christmas. I wonder to you both, I mean, if we look at institutionally first, uh, is it likely that your students' unions will maintain the same position that they're in at the moment? Is there any change there? And then if we look at the wider student body, I mean, if we're suggesting that there is a certain degree of apathy, um, resignation about these three days of strike, I mean, how, how is that likely to be exacerbated? Alex coming into potentially more strikes in the new year? Well, based on conversations I've had um, inside the union, I think that the, the, the exact might change their position on this oh, really? purely based on the negative backlash that they got um, from that original post. Because I think, well, I think the safe option is for a union is to remain neutral and just say you're going to support the students, which is what they've done previously. Um, and yeah, I, I actually attended some of the, the the consultations after the statement was released, and they were quite. It was quite heated, and um, the people. I mean, obviously, the people who are going to attend those are they're going to be the more politically engaged students. However, it was very overwhelmingly. Um, the, the sentiment was that they'd got it wrong, and I think the I think the exec are, are keen to. Um, yeah, kind of re reevaluate how they came to that conclusion, and um, you know, keep everyone happy, really. So I think I think they could change their opinion. Actually, do you think maybe a referendum, the other side of Christmas, might be something they'd explore? Well, I think that's what they should do. I think that's what they should do. Um, why they didn't do that to begin with, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I haven't heard of any talk about a referendum, but I, I think that would be the right option. And in Birmingham, I suppose, Ellen, how? Mm. I mean, if if you're suggesting that in Birmingham, there's there is that apathy resignation how do you think that will be exacerbated if there are potentially more strikes on the other side of christmas yeah i think i kind of it's a let me get my words out the guild's in a bit of a difficult position because it's this neutral building so during the strikes the lecturers it's not crossing the picket line to go to the guild so when i go to go and do some work in burn fm i'm not crossing a picket line because the guild is a neutral space but it's a neutral space that's voted to support the lecturers so i think it'll be interesting to see how that because they come in to use the loos use the shop use the bar um, it's like, I wonder, I wonder how that would change if we voted slightly differently in the spring. Um, and obviously per guild policy, we will have another referendum if there is another strike because it's a different round of strikes. And I think the positioning of this round of strikes is perhaps it's right near Christmas. It's when people have quite a lot of deadlines. So some people might be quite grateful for some extra time to work on their essays. So again, I think it'll be an interesting one. It, I think it will depend how long the strikes are, because of course, going into January, that's our, um, we have an exams week in January. And if it disrupts that, I think there might be a very uh, anti, a much stronger, perhaps no campaign. Maybe there might even be a no campaign. Um, but as I've said before, there will be issues, I think, with the quorum, given that we sort of scraped through the quorum this time around. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what the turnout is, uh, uh, if there is, a, if we have to have another referendum in January. And we've looked at the kind of, the division of, of of the way the students are thinking on this. What about the UCUs themselves at both of your universities? Mm -hmm. uh, it's sometimes difficult to to make it out exactly from the statistics that have been published by the UCU about support and opposition to strike action at their uh, at each of their branches. But talking to staff, engaging with staff, do you get the sense that uh, you know are staff as on board with these strikes as they have been in the past, or is it the case that they're even more on board because they've gone through the pandemic and all of the challenges that have come? along with that and are therefore in a position where these strikes mean even more to them what do you think alex uh, i think it, it's definitely a case that there's a strong um feeling of support and oh it's kind of almost desperation actually um for postgraduate researchers and um yeah staff at the university to actually see some change um and i think that if anything the pandemic's really put that all into focus just how uh, insecure a lot of these contracts are just how um overworked 
and um, kind of undervalued. Um, a lot of staff members are as well to to the upper university management um, and the pension the, the the pension scheme. That that whole situation has actually changed a lot because of the pandemic. Um, uh, which is very, very complicated and I don't have time to get into now. But uh, I think these strikes actually matter more than ever uh, for these members of staff. So I don't think um, in terms of the local ECU branches, we're going to see any wavering on this at all. Would that be something similar in Birmingham? What do you think, Ellen? Yeah, I mean, I've sort of been speaking to the UCU for Redbrick and they were sort of saying that uh, what's the one thing, this is a quote I got from the Birmingham UCU, is they said the current system of underfunding, inequality and crushing workloads is good for neither staff nor students. So there's quite a big push um, from the Birmingham UCU certainly to try and engage students and to sort of say this is, this, they've got this slogan that's our fight is your fight. And I think trying to emphasise to students that the outcome of the strikes and that they're striking for better working conditions for everyone. However, I think it's quite different sometimes to get that across to yeah. final year students and students who aren't going to be around to see these changes. Um, so I think it can feel, certainly for those of us who've had strikes in our first year and now having strikes in our final year, sort of intercut with the pandemic, I think it can be quite, It can. I think that's where this sense of apathy and resignation has kind of grown from because that's sort of all we've had. Um, has been our entire on-campus university uh, experience has kind of been beset yeah. by strikes. And as a final so, note to both of you, uh, we've we've said that you know COVID plays a really important part of this from the staff perspective, from the student perspective. Um, what COVID restrictions are still in place at, at both of your universities? Is there any online learning? Is it all back in the classroom? Assignments, that sort of stuff. Uh, give us a kind of summary of of of, of what the COVID restrictions are uh, where you are, Ellen. Um, so the main thing in Birmingham is masks. Um, some One of my lecturers doesn't mind us not wearing masks in these sort of seminar rooms. I think my other two lecturers do ask us to wear masks and they wear masks, but there's not most, I mean, certainly, I mean, last year, all my dental student housemates were back on campus doing teeth stuff. But I mean, I'm an art student, so I've only just come back to in-campus teaching, but all my teaching is in person now. Um, and the main thing I think the university is pushing is masks and um, good hygiene, which I was kind of hope we had beforehand. But I mean, our guild nights out are still happening. So club nights are being thrown at the guild. Um, and it seems to be, it seems to feel fairly normal. And I, I haven't felt any change, certainly, from since when the new variant seems to have reared its ugly head. But um, yeah, I mean, it just seems to be masks in some lectures, but not in all. Okay. And something similar at Leeds, Alex? Yeah, something similar. They're, they are, um, it's a process called hybrid learning at the minute. So, um, yeah, some some online, some in-person teaching. Um, may, the, all the large-scale lectures are online, but most of everything else um, is in-person. Obviously, it depends what kind of course you do as to to what, um, to what extent that affects you. Um, but I think for the most part, it feels normal-ish. A campus is quieter than it has been in, in previous years, um, but con compared to last year, there's a lot more um, going on. And yeah, similar a similar point to Ellen that I think a lot of people um, are kind of spotting the kind of hypocrisy of um, the university uh, being very strict with their COVID procedures, whereas the union, for example, are still hosting club nights. So I think that I know they are separate bodies and they work independently of each other officially um but i think i think for a lot of students they don't understand uh the the logic behind both those things so but now omicron's coming who knows what's going to happen in the new year <laughs> well we can look forward to that thank you both so much we're going to have to leave it there thank you very much for giving me uh, your time alex gibbon from the griffin university of leeds ellen knight head of news at burn fm and editor at red brick at the university of birmingham thank you so much both for being with me this is the scoop on sunday the time is 21 minutes past seven
Now, the emergence of the new COVID variant, Omicron, has caused reaction from governments across the world. Whilst the jury is still out as to whether this new variant is more harmful, more transmissible, or even could reinfect those who already have the virus, some governments around the world have tightened up their COVID rules, including here in the UK, where new travel rules have been implemented, mandating COVID tests for incoming travellers and speeding up the booster jab programme. I've been talking to student journalists across the world, Let's start with Can Tran in Australia. Hi there, Can. Thank you so much for being with me. Why don't you give us an idea of the reaction in Australia to the global spread of this new variant? Um, so down uh, south in Australia, um, at the moment, it's everything is very much um, fast-paced and, and moving, but there has been definitely reactions, um, different reactions, I would say, between the federal government and then the state government. So... With the federal government, they've been very much on a cautions, like um, on a on a caution mode right now. So, for example, they have pause very temporarily, just about two weeks, um, of the re- border reopening um, plans that they have. So, by border, I mean the um, international travel borders. So, they have imposed a um, temporary ban on. Um, Southern African countries, so as, um, so for example, Zimbabwe, South Africa, who reported the existence of the variant at the beginning, um, and then also paused um, the re-entry of passengers from, say, um, South Korea and Japan, which they have uh, in originally scheduled for literally just three days ago on the 1st of December, um, but they are still keeping up the schedule for, like, New Zealanders and Singaporean travellers because those are still going ahead. So my caution is in, um, for example, health ministers, so at the federal level, they've been, I guess, trying to say that, oh, um, caution and caution. So they're keeping open mind because apparently they, they, it may be or may not be a more milder variant. So just, I guess, on information seeking, um, pausing some of those reopening plans, but otherwise mainly primarily the same so trajectory of about in two weeks time um the borders will no longer require travel exemptions um for yeah for international uh, travelers to come in and this will include international students as well with the states um they probably impose more heavier travel restrictions because really it's the states that controls things like international student re-entry and so on and so forth um and yeah I was going to say, actually, where does the power lie? Because here in the UK, of course, a considerable amount of authority is vested when it comes to health in the different devolved administrations in Scotland, England and Wales. Um, We were just talking to Justin in New Zealand about how it's quite a unitary system. You know, it's quite centralised there. What way does it work in Australia? Who really has power when it comes to dealing with COVID restrictions? Um, In terms of COVID restrictions, I would say the federal government, so the unitary um, um, you know, federal parliament. So they, they, they literally wield um, external affairs powers to literally deal with international travels. So if they decide to say throw in an, a um, unilateral ban on entries, which they had last year for most countries during the very start of COVID, that would be the case. But really, um, politically, the powers really lies at the hands of the state premier. So different states uh, and in, including Northern Territory and ACT as well um, they have they will very strong like power so for example with lockdown those are very much by premier by premier so for example right now 
Um, Western Australia probably doesn't have any um, restrictions at all. They, for example, have border closures with pretty much all of the other states in Australia, um, bar, I think, for um, Queensland and maybe, I think, Tasmania, because Tasmania and um, Queensland haven't got a lot of um, community cases, and maybe South Australia as well. But basically, border closures um, are very much on the hands of the state. And what about vaccinations then? Because that's the really big thing that's changed, I suppose, from maybe this time last year uh, and, and just before that. What are the vaccination rates like in Australia? How's that rollout been managed? Um, so I am aware that the ordering of the vaccines, those are negotiated between the different states and the federal government because the federal government very much gets the shipments over and distributed among the states. Um, in terms of vaccination rate, I'd say um, the last time I checked, which was literally this morning, and it was about 75% double dose for, on average, on average. Um, New South Wales is leading the pack. So we have about, I think about 94%, no, no, it is 94% um, double dose vaccinated. Um, Victoria, just about 91. So very much, like about 92%. So very much neck and neck. Um, the ones that lags me had a bit more probably also because of an absence of community cases for quite a long time, like Western Australia, Queensland, so on and so forth. Um, but they're still hovering um, about 78%, so very close to the magic number, which in theory about 80%, which under the federal government's plan is um, allowed border reopening, by border reopening within between the six. And it's an interesting question, and I hadn't expected to talk about this, but we were just talking to Justin from New Zealand, who was saying there's a real inequality in terms of vaccination uptake when it comes to Indigenous Aboriginal people. He was talking about Maori. What is is that something that's also the case in Australia? Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember, so communities, Indigenous and First Nations communities, in not only in Sydney, New South Wales, that pattern's unfortunately been replicated. So I'm aware, for example, I think it was um, Queensland's um, Indigenous community have have not been vaccinated as much as other groups and other groups. Um, and this is partially one di- distribution to the highly urbanised nature of the vaccination rollout. So if you're close to, say, a distribution centre or you're close to GP, Many Indigenous communities um, live in, uh, are under, for example, different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. And then maybe, uh, and this distribution and the distribution problem is also on a regional and urban um, dynamic as well. So um, regional areas tend to have lower vaccination rates because um, it's very much the GP. Um, but if you don't have, for example, pop-up centre that just lower vaccination rates, so and so forth. Yeah, and how what has the general mood been in Australia about uh, the government's handling of these kind of later stages of the pandemic? Has there been much public reaction? Have there been any protests, for example, even from fringe groups that we've seen some some other places here in the UK and in America? Um, there has absolutely been. So in New South Wales, which um, have a gradual like reopening plan. So I'll take, for example, the two biggest states, so Victoria and then New South Wales. Then there have been protesters. Um, for example, I think a few weeks ago, we had quite a significant um, protest 
I think out of numbering more than 50,000, that was very much an anti-vax um, and then so to speak, like freedom rally. Um, and that was a significant movement. It's, I guess it's it's a paradox because we have one of the highest rates of vaccination in the country, but also like a fringe. Um, we do, I guess this was in reaction, not so much to vaccination, but also to the vaccine mandate, which um, New South Wales implements. Um, the thing down in Victoria, where Victoria probably have a slightly more um, stringent um, vaccine mandate than New South Wales, slightly more stringent, they're almost virtually identical. Um, Same with Western Australia and so on and so forth. So there is, but the mood overall, I would say it's very much um, pro-vaccination because the vaccination rate is extraordinarily high i guess compared to many other um uh to to those you know to many of those in europe for example um so fringe group but they are probably um able to project their um, their voice quite loudly um and also probably given the Im- an impending federal election as well yeah i i wonder just as we kind of as we finish up can there's been some discussion in europe about uh, in places like Austria and Germany, increasing restrictions on people who are unvaccinated, a discussion, uh, certainly a lot of public support in some places to do with mandatory vaccines, so enforcing people to have vaccines. Is that something that's starting to enter the public discourse in Australia at all? Or do you think that for a variety of reasons that just won't be on the table in Australia? Um, at the moment, that's not really on the table because at status quo, um Restrictions for the those who are unvaccinated um, are very much enforced by, say, businesses, so on and so forth. So if I go to a club, go to a venue, um, or even to the university library, they would literally ask you for a vaccination certificate. So that's act as a normative, I guess, like um, incentive to actually get vaccinated. And um, so for that reason, the next plan in that in that reopening for pretty much for all the states is internally to wind down the vaccination mandate as opposed to increasing it because we are probably at where um, many European uh, nations are in like they, they have increased the mandate that's where we are at the moment so pretty much the only way to go is very much down. Yeah. Uh, a sort of final question, Can You mentioned university library then. I wonder for students who are listening here, who are wondering how other students around the world are being affected. What Are there any restrictions currently placed in your university when it comes to online learning, different types of assessment? What what way is it like being a student at the moment in Australia? Um, so just speaking from this perspective, just from New South Wales, because New South Wales had a... Um, quite strict lockdown between June and then to late September. Um, so very much the second half of the year for all of New South Wales universities and then Victoria as well, because they had a lockdown as well, very much entirely online. Um, everything is in, entirely online. It was very much a bit later, for example, access to facilities like libraries and stuff with very stringent, it's almost like walking into an airport security um, to actually access those. Um, other parts of Australia, for example, Adelaide, so South Australia, and then you get to Western Australia in Perth, um, they've been able to probably study more um, in person. For example, I have a few friends from uh, Adelaide, uh, a friend of mine stayed in Adelaide, and she was zooming in, and it was like um, she could go to to that university's events instead of our own one. Yeah. Um, so that was actually quite hilarious. But it's 
differing depending on the pockets. But now it's getting closer to closer. So next semester, for example, um, OWIC, so um, Welcome Week will be in person again. Um, and I guess that the pressure is on to reopen um, now that uh, vaccination rates are high. Cam, thank you so much for talking to me. That was Cam Tran, editor at Onisoy at the University of Sydney. Let's cross now to Justin Wong, student journalist from 95BFM at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Justin, thank you so much for being with me. Give us an idea then about uh, what the reaction has been in New Zealand to this new variant. Um, has there been much of a reaction or, or are COVID restrictions still in place? Give us a bit of a summary. In fact, there isn't much of too much of a reaction over here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, because everyone's so concentrated about Delta cases right now. And frankly, because we don't know, I, I think the because the entire world doesn't know much about Omicron, there is not much of reaction to uh, say about it. But as far as we know, the government the government here said because we just moved into a new. Um, public health system regarding on COVID-19, and which means we don't have lockdowns, but the government, including the prime minister, the COVID-19 response minister, and the health minister have all said, even if Omicron makes its, makes its way into the community, there won't be any changes to our pandemic playbook. And, and why is that? Because throughout the pandemic, Justin, and perhaps it's different when you're inside New Zealand as an international observer. Uh, you know, the rest of the world, certainly here in the UK, we view the New, New Zealand as taking a very strict approach, very quick to take lockdowns. I remember the days of reading news headlines when there, you know, one COVID case in, for example, Auckland and the city would be locked down, or maybe one or two COVID cases in the city would be locked down. I mean, what is the reason for that? It seems like a slight policy change to say, well, actually, we're, we're going to allow, we have a tolerance for a certain amount of spread. Is there a reason for that? Is it, is it public opinion? I mean, has there been much discussion of that change? Oh, yes, there has been a slight change of strategy already. I think that what that happened around uh, two months ago in October, when basically they abandoned the elimination strategy in all but in name. And now I think the government here is proceeding a strategy of uh, living with the virus as like, as I think over with you guys in the UK as well. And when it comes to the likes of vaccinations, is that a, is that a really important part of, of abandoning this elimination strategy? The idea that, you know, the vaccinations are going to play a key role in fighting against it. What kind of, I mean, what, how's the vaccination rollout been going in New Zealand? Oh yeah. So, uh, over the country, it's going quite well. It's quite rapid, in fact. And in fact, in Auckland, where I am based right now, the entire region just hit uh, 90% of double vaccinated on Friday, which prompted us into the current uh, public health level settings where uh, vaccine certificates are now in place and most businesses are open. It's called a traffic light system because we everything is, the entire country is divided into regions and placed under either red, orange, and green settings. So that means that in under the traffic lights uh, system, uh, most of the, all businesses can still be open. And but for those who are opting not to use uh, vaccine, so not checking vaccine certificates, there will be certain limitations like for example, because Auckland, we're now placed in red, gatherings indoors can be 
up to 100 people if you check vaccine passports. But if you don't check vaccine certificates, uh, retail can only be click and collect only. And um, yeah, then that's pretty much it. It's an interesting because I think maybe especially here in Northern Ireland, it's been more of a sense of, you know, you're opening your clothes, but it's interesting that you, you know, it's kind of a variation there in that traffic light system and how, how, how vaccine certification comes into that. In some parts of, of Europe, Justin, there's been increasing discussions about making COVID-19 vaccines mandatory. And certainly I know in Austria and some parts of Germany, there's been a real push, some a, a, a surge in public opinion for having you know lockdowns that are specific to people who are unvaccinated when it comes to that issue of moving beyond encouraging people to take a vaccine to sort of coercing and maybe even making it mandatory is that a road that New Zealand's going down or does it not feel necessary because you know because the uptake so far has been so successful Oh, no. In fact, um, some of the, the vaccine, there is a vaccine mandate for some sectors already, I think, but not limiting to teachers, the health force and police and the New Zealand Defence Force over here. Uh, but the government also announced, I think, a couple of weeks ago that boosters are available, but not mandatory for people who have got their uh, second dose of the vaccine six months ago and um yeah and i think some of the people like because they are priority workers uh who got their vaccines way earlier than the general rollout have already got their booster shots but personally i think having a vaccine mandate rolled over the entire country isn't effective in Aotearoa, new zealand not because we have high vaccination rates, but the health inequity goals are still prominent here because even though for uh, Pākehā or New Zealand Europeans or Asian population, the vaccine levels are very, very high. Everyone is getting vaccinated. But on the other hand, the indigenous Māori population in Pacifica or Pacific Islanders population, the vaccine levels are so are stagnant or remain low at best. Last time I checked, um, the Maori vaccination, the number of Maori who are vaccinate, who are fully vaccinated, aren't even higher than seventy percent. And several regions in the east uh, of the north in the northern and the eastern parts of uh, New Zealand's North Island have to be in the same settings as Auckland because vaccination rates aren't high enough. And, and why is that? Why is there hesitancy that's targeted at particular um, sort of ethnic groups? Oh, I think it's kind of because of New Zealand's past of colonisation as well, and that's been uh, reinforced by several research already. And in the past, um, health equity health health targets um amongst uh maori and pacific and pacifica in new zealand have been recently low they have higher cancer rates um higher lower health expectancy rates and unfortunately and even in this outbreak most of the new cases we see are mostly from maori and pacifica community and yeah, basically the vac- the low vaccination rates is an extension of what happened in the past. Yeah, and I suppose it, it, it's a kind of distrust of government because of a, a, a previous failures of government. Um, Definitely, uh, and that's yeah, and that's kind of 
all historical factors yeah. that were linked up that causes the situation that yeah. New Zealand sees today where health inequity is still prevalent. And when it comes to uh, general population opinion, I mean, how are people viewing the government's overall handling of these sort of later stages of the pandemic? Have there been any protests, fringe protests or that sort of thing? Uh, well, where's public opinion at generally at the moment in New Zealand? Generally, I think the government, the gov, uh, the public confidence in the government is still high, even though even though we had an election last year and the, the incumbent Labour government and the incumbent Labour Party has returned for a supermajority when it comes to the New Ze- when it comes to New Zealand's parliament. But support has been dipping a little bit uh, since the. Delta outbreak started in August, partly because I think there has been a little bit of miscommunication on the government's parts when they try to uh, roll in the uh, when it comes to rolling in the new living with the virus strategy. People were confused on how the settings would work, and I particularly remember they rolled in this uh, setting, which allows people to. Uh, have gatherings of 10 outside of their homes, but you can't use the bathroom. So basically a lot of Mm. asterisks on asterisks and asterisks that got people confused. But on the other hand, the opposition isn't doing itself much favours though because of its internal squabble. And in fact, last week, the party, well, the former party leader tried to demote uh, her potential rival over an basically uh, over an incident, basically a non-issue five years ago, and the caucus uh, voted a no-confidence motion in her, and basically they just elected, I think, the like the third or fourth new wow. leader in two in just two years. Yeah, so now, yeah, so the easy's having the government's having a bit of an easier time of it inside Parliament. Um, I'm I'm interested as well, Justin. What way? The, uh, the restrictions working in New Zealand are they heavily centralised? Is you know is it the central parliament that's calling the shots, or is it slightly more federal, like for example in the United States or here in the United Kingdom, where you have the regional authorities that have a lot of power? Uh, you know how centralised is it in New Zealand? That's an interesting question because it really reflects on um, New Zealand's uh, kind of historical setting where Maori between Māori and the central government. So all the public health restrictions, all the public health settings that I talked about earlier are mostly devised by local, uh, no, not by local government, by central government based in Wellington. But over, for the past couple of weeks, we see iwi or Māori tribes in the northern part of the North Island setting up their own checkpoints to stop Auckland people from Auckland from coming in because their vaccination rates are low. And we also have iwi in the eastern parts of the North Island are saying we don't want Aucklanders traveling uh, there mm. to the region for the summer as well. So kind of, so technically iwi doesn't really have the say in deciding policy, but policymakers down in Wellington will kind of need to take their views on board as well. It's a complicated situation when we talk about iwi crown relations, and I don't think I'm really qualified to say about that. <laughs> no, yeah. definitely. And, and when it comes to 
travel restrictions. It's a, yeah, it's a very complex. Yeah. It's very it's a very complex situation involving a lot of his, historical uh, context and um, uh, uh, political situations. Um, and when it comes to travel, uh, just to sort of finish up, Justin, I suppose if anybody was thinking of heading to New Zealand to catch some of the sun that I can see in the background there when it's in our dreadful winter here, uh, would they be able to? What are the travel restrictions like heading into New Zealand at the moment? Certainly not this year, I'm afraid. But if you, uh, if you, if in any chances you have a New Zealand passport, you'll be able to come back. Um, I think sometime in February, when travel restriction, when quarantine restrictions uh, then are dropped. But if you really want to come to have a travel traveling here in Aotearoa, you have to wait until April, I'm afraid, providing that you are fully vaccinated and do everything like uh, pre-negative uh, checks beforehand. Okay. But uh, yeah. But have to, have to wait you a little time then, Justin. You have to wait a little bit of time. But if you want to come here for Christmas, I'm afraid it's a no, unless you come in if you have a New Zealand passport. Okay. Or will, or and are willing to spend two weeks in managed isolation. And that's not much fun for Christmas either. Justin, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. That was Justin Wong, student journalist from 95B FM at the University of Auckland. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is nine minutes to eight. Let's spin the globe now and go to Jesse Lieberman from the Miami Herald. Jesse, thank you so much for talking to me. We were just hearing there reaction from the rest of the world to this new variant. Has there been much of a reaction in the USA to the new Omicron variant, or are you still kind of feeling the effects of the last wave of the pandemic? Um, you know, down here in Florida, I don't think people are too concerned about the Omicron variant, for better or for worse. Uh, people are seem to be going about their daily lives. We just had this big event called Art Basel, where uh, people from all over the world flew in and you know, they were parting it up and living life like it was normal. So I don't I don't think that we're seeing too, ma- too much effects or concerns over the Omicron variant down here in Florida. <laughs> well, what about the rest of the states? Is there a big division there? I mean, how much authority and power do the individual state governors have to decide the regulations within their state? Yeah, so the governors out here are definitely the ones calling most of the shots. So like here in Florida, the governor is very pro open things up and he wants to he he basically Florida never stopped. He, he was like, we're we're Florida. We're going to do whatever we want. Um, but other states have definitely shut down more and they're much more cautious about COVID and stuff. And um, I can't I haven't I've, I haven't been outside of Florida since the Omicron variant started, so I can't speak to their levels of concern. But I know my friends back in Seattle, which is in Washington state on the exact opposite side of the country, uh, they're they're concerned about it. You know, they're concerned that we're going to see similar spikes like we saw with the Delta variant, which was um, which, you know, resulted in a lot of cases out here. Uh, But, you know, I think there is also the fact that, you know, 60 percent of people in America are vaccinated and those that have have uh, wanted to get vaccinated have all pretty much had the opportunity to get vaccinated. So there's that level of it. Um, People are a little less concerned because of that. But um, I do think outside of Florida, people are definitely going to be looking at this Omicron variant a little more cautiously. When it comes to the federal government, so, you know, Joe Biden yeah. in the White House, has he said much on this? Are there new federal rules in to do with the areas in which they can control things like international travel? Yeah. Yeah. So he shut down. He I believe he shut down travel from South uh, South Africa. 
And um, there's he's definitely been the politicians in Washington have definitely been more aware of it and they're monitoring it and they're speaking on it. I know Anthony Fauci, who's our nation's leading um, nation's leading infectious disease doctor. He said that they still want time to study it and see how deadly it is. But he's given out the message that, you know, it's very transmittable and it can still be it could still be a problem. But he's there. I think they're waiting to kind of study a little bit before they sort of either sound the alarms and say, hey, this is going to be a huge issue or let's kind of continue our course. Yeah, totally. And when it comes to vaccinations, you mentioned it there in America. Did you say they're around 60 percent? Does that yeah. does that differ a lot by state? And, and in America, I certainly, you know, by the coverage, maybe some of it that I've seen and you can correct me if it's not quite representative. Politics is much more involved in, in the rollout of the vaccine than it is in other places. Would that be fair? Uh, yeah, that would definitely be fair. It's extremely involved um, out here, again, for better, but I would say probably mostly for worse. Um, <laughs> not only not only does it vary by state, so red states being conservative states, they have a much lower vaccination rate. It really varies by city to uh, rural communities. So like the cities, big cities in the U.S. tend to be liberal and uh, left leaning. And then outside the big cities, you see more right leaning and conservative viewpoints. And the right leaning people and conservative people are much less likely in this country to be have been vaccinated. And, uh, yeah, there's large pockets of resistance that are of people that are refusing to be vaccinated. That can either be just because they are big on, say, individual rights. They think they shouldn't have to get vaccinated and they don't want to be told what to do. Or it can be because they believe conspiracy theories like QAnon, which they think Bill Gates has implanted microchips in the vaccine and they'll be... How, how widespread is, are those kind of beliefs, Jesse? Because I suppose <laughs> because they are so eccentric, we maybe hear about them quite often and it becomes a bit of a meme and it becomes a bit of a joke and uh, and that sort of thing. But it, in real terms, is it, you know, it, how many people actually, you know, sign up to these kind of conspiracy theories? And, and in America, is that substantially greater than elsewhere? I suppose, you know, you can't quite answer that, but from your perspective. You know, it's hard to say. So I think before last year's election, uh, the presidential election between Trump and Biden, I would have been inclined to believe that these conspiracy theories were less widespread. But then out here, we saw thousands of people come from across the country who were convinced that the election was rigged. And really this conspiracy theory that it was part of a grand overarching like Hillary Clinton was had orchestrated this whole thing and stuff. And the reality is that was simply not true. And so, you know, I don't know. With social media and stuff, I, I worry that it is kind of there's the there's these pockets of people that are not like huge, but still notable that do believe these sorts of things. And um, again, obviously, I mean, a lot of the people in the country are just flat out refusing to get va vaccinated, not giving their reasons why or why not. And that is definitely a notable percentage. And it's uh, it's concerning. You know, it's it's hard because we can see the mutations of the virus and stuff. Yeah. And there's there's increasingly across 
Central Europe, so the likes of Austria and Germany, I know there's increased public pressure to have more restrictions that are applied on unvaccinated people specifically. I know there was discussion in Austria and increasing discussion in Germany about a lockdown that applies specifically yeah. to unvaccinated people. In America, I wonder, well, I mean, what are the differences in terms of the everyday life and liberty of people who are vaccinated versus unvaccinated when it comes to businesses, churches, public places, museums? And I suppose, is there any chance, do you think, in American culture that that there could be a lockdown measures or maybe restrictions that are exclusively um, applied to unvaccinated people? Or do you think that's just, you know, American sort of life would never allow that. It's so deeply embedded in the culture. I, I could see in liberal states, it could be, it could happen. Uh, I, I could see liberal states requiring vaccination cards with inside re within restaurants. I know back in Seattle, which is a very liberal city that some restaurants are requiring people to show vaccination cards. It's, it's far from common. In fact, it's extremely uncommon. Um, I think though that I, that will never happen in red states, um, yeah. in conservative states. I think even if Biden tried to implement law, countrywide laws, the first thing that would happen would be uh, conservative governors would sue to stop it. In fact, we already saw that happen with uh, Biden tr passed a law requiring federal workers at all levels to be vaccinated. And the first thing that happened was uh, conservative states uh, leaders sued to stop it. And they got an injunction so far. And we don't know if the Supreme Court will hear the case, but uh, the federal the the jurisdictions have stopped it. So uh, I, I find it hard to believe that that will be ever, ever be nationwide kind of life within the United States. I think the idea of this, that they've attached to liberty of not being vaccinated yeah. is too strong. And, 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 and because it is, well, it's not uniquely political in, in, in America, but it's particularly political, COVID-19 totally. and the pandemic. Um, do you think, I mean, I know there are midterm elections coming up next year. There are probably much more yeah. regular elections at local, state, national levels uh, that, that we don't get all the coverage for. How much will the pandemic and this vaccine rollout play into the next couple of years of, of American politics? Will Joe Biden and state governors be judged on what they did over this period of time? Or really, is it starting to feel like an aberration and, and just America's moving through it? No, I, I think I think it's absolutely going to play a pretty big role in it. I was actually covering local elections down here probably about a month ago, and it was a big thing. The coronavirus and saying staying open and uh, not having to be required to wear masks. That was a big talking point in a lot of the local elections down here. And, uh, you know, the midterms are not looking good for the Democrats and Biden, um, be that because of the economy or because of COVID. But um, I, th I think it'll absolutely be a talking point. Um, but I think also, though, there's going to be other influences like inflation is uh, I, I'm not sure if it's as, as big an issue out in the UK where you guys are. But um, within the United States, inflation is the big thing that's being discussed right now. And uh, it, it'll definitely be it'll definitely be a talking point for sure. And I think actually one thing that Biden will try to hang his hat on during this is the fact that he did manage to get 60 percent of America vaccinated. I don't know how, what the percentage was when he took office, but he that was his big thing through the first year in office. And although he's met pockets of resistance, he has been able to get a large chunk of people vaccinated. OK, Jesse, thank you so much for talking to me. Of course. Thank you, Thomas. Chat soon. That was Jesse Lieberman there from the Miami Herald. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is one minute past eight. 
Now, a union representing head teachers here in Northern Ireland has suggested that schools should close early this Christmas due to staff shortages caused by COVID-19. Well, with me now to chat more and to look at what's happening in Northern Ireland schools is the president of the Secondary Students' Union of Northern Ireland, Morgan Chuttleworth. Morgan, thanks so much for being with me. Not at all. I suppose before we talk about the specific suggestion from the NASUWT, uh, give us an idea of what, what kind of COVID restrictions are currently in place in schools across Northern Ireland. Is it masks? Is it social distancing, one-way systems? Paint us a picture of what it's like to be a student at the moment. Um, at the minute, uh, you've got masks in corridors or mandatory in most schools. Uh, I'd say a lot of schools have a one-way system in theory, but not in practicality for obviously obvious reasons. Schools are huge. You know, If it's not enforced properly, it's not feasible. You can't expect 11-year-olds to take that initiative by themselves. Yeah. So, And then is it masks in the classroom? Uh, the teacher would wear a mask. Uh, students wouldn't usually. I mean, they're obviously, they can if they want, but it's not enforced. That's an unusual way around to do it. I think you would you would presume maybe that the students being much closer together would have masks on and then the teacher wouldn't need to if they're a little bit further away. Is there a kind of justification behind that or is just that that's the way things have turned out? I think that's just the way things have turned out. I think it's brave of you to assume there's justification for any of it. And when it comes to staff being forced to isolate and students being forced to isolate, Morgan might be a better place to start. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, sort of uh, on a rolling basis, are there are there people from your classes... Uh, uh, classes across Northern Ireland, uh, you know, a proportion of people who are isolating sort of every day. Is it really not that many people isolating, which might indicate that COVID is spreading, but people people aren't getting tested? How many people on average are sort of not in class due to self-isolation sort of every every week? So I think the, situ- the, the situation with regards to how many students are missing school has gotten better because the isolation period for students has been brought down to three days after a negative PCR, obviously. Um, but I was looking at the statistics and it's 11,500 students were off with COVID last week. Um, and I'm not sure if that's isolating as well as positive cases. Um, but, you know, either of them is just too high. A teacher's, I think it's 1,500. Again, that's isolating and that's just you know, too high for us to not do something about it in schools. And I suppose just on a anecdotal basis from your perspective, before we get on to this discussion of, of you know, the way to mitigate it, is it common that you'd walk into a classroom and you'd go, oh, well, there's a substitute in because the teacher's off isolating? Uh, I wouldn't say it was commonplace, but it's not rare either. You know, you would get the, the odd case. I think we, my school personally, have been very lucky where we haven't had any huge outbreaks um, since we've come back in September. Yeah. Okay, well, what about this suggestion uh, from from the head teachers union? I suppose the theory is, you know, you've got a lot of substitutes having to come in because teachers are off with COVID. Uh, Staff shortages might force coming up to Christmas a move to online learning anyway. Uh, What are your thoughts on on, on bringing the Christmas holidays forward a week? I think it's a a very sensible suggestion and a very feasible one. The situation we were in last year where we didn't come back after Christmas for three, four months, just we can't afford that again. We can't, students mentally, uh, academically can't afford that. Teachers, I'm sure parents would be raging. We just can't afford that again. And if, if it was a choice between having one week off school before Christmas or an extended period of time after Christmas, you know, you'd pick the week before Christmas. The uh, NAS UWT have said that the DA should look at their stance of keep schools open at all costs, but it shouldn't be an all or nothing situation. It should be what can we do 
to keep them shut for the least amount of time as possible. And what's the best way to do that? A week, a circuit breaker. Uh, just before Christmas, it would save uh, children isolating uh, over Christmas Day, which I think, you know, we called for last year, which unfortunately wasn't put in place. But you can imagine, you know, if there's someone vulnerable in the house, uh, you know, grandparents sitting in their houses by themselves, if there's someone vulnerable in the house, uh, children sitting in their rooms with plastic trays, eating their Christmas dinner, you know, that's not an image you want to have you know, for yourself. And I think, you know, looking at the new year, we, we've we always been told that there'll be a Christmas spike. It was the same last year. It was the same this year. We've been told there's going to be a Christmas spike. So if we can do something to sort of preempt that action and to stop the schools from shutting after Christmas, why wouldn't we? Yeah. And um, um, what about, I mean, this question of uh, some of the reporting over the last couple of days has reported that schools like Belfast Moyes Model, for example, have been forced to move some of their classes to online learning. Is that something that's widespread or is that a fairly isolated incident when it comes to schools across across Northern Ireland? I'd say that's a fairly rare incident. I haven't heard of any um, other instances where that has happened, but I think in the long run, obviously, that could be a mitigation that would be well-timed and well-placed because of the increasing uh, figures that we're going to have over Christmas. Yeah, and sort of looking retrospectively, I suppose, Morgan, you've gone through a period of time where you had plenty of online learning. You Mm -hmm. had uh, in-person, face-to-face learning clearly before that as well, and now you're back to online learning. Sorry, when you're back to to face-to-face learning. Um, I suppose if you had to try to sort of put it into numbers for me, add a wee percentage on there, how much better is it to be face-to-face? Is it much better? I mean, what what would you count as the difference in terms of how much you learn, pick up from other people, absorb the content? What's the difference between online learning and being back face-to-face? It's so much better. Same percentage, 100% better being in class. You know, at home, I just, you know, you just stick on your laptop, turn the camera off, have it at the other side of the room almost, and with the problem with online learning is a lot of it a lot of the time it's not the same timetabled classes you'd have every week so obviously you know i'd have six different classes a day i'd maybe have my sub i'm definitely last year um i had my subjects once a week mostly so that's you know three hours of learning that's not even half a day you know compared to being in school okay yeah so it makes a huge difference i suppose then in that context i mean you've got students Typically, you know, GCSEs and A levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if they're kind of pitched as two year courses, but clearly, you know, there's a, a quite clear two year progression mm-hmm. when it comes to GCSEs of fourth year into fifth year, and you've got A levels lower sixth into upper sixth, and and some of that learning is all cumulative. Yeah. Um, when you have students who are moving from being online last year to sitting exams this year, um, I mean, do you think those students feel prepared? after having a year last year that is of online learning and now only one year in person before they're having to sit exams you know how does assignments play into all of this absolutely absolutely not prepared at all um you know with regards to gcse's yes it's a a two-year course and you'd sit the exams at the end of each of those years but a lot of schools don't enter for the exams at the end of fourth year which means you do all of them at the end of fifth year and when you've missed a huge chunk of your learning in fourth year um, and there's been very little changes. You know, there's one unit for SEA, that's fair enough. And SEA are doing quite a lot to help students. But when you're looking at uh, Excel and AQA, the English and Welsh exam boards, there's no uh, content reductions at all. So you're still looking at the same amount of work, the same amount of coursework, the same amount of revising as you would have in a normal year, except you've missed four months of learning. Yeah, okay. And I suppose then that plays into, you know, you don't want to be it's in university's interest as well, for example, to try to sort that out earlier rather than later. So that's grades as part of it. Um, and mm-hmm. grades are a very tangible part of 
your schooling experience, certainly yeah. in, in secondary school. Perhaps the more important aspects of, of being at school is about, you know, it's about non-tangible skills, it's about teamwork, it's about communication, it's about social ability. Uh, is there any evidence, maybe from your own perspective, have students suffered from, from what is that, a year and a half of about online learning? Yeah. Because uh, it's not so much, I suppose, for your age, but maybe it's, you know, it's first, second and third year. Those That's the time in your life when mm-hmm. you're really being pushed out of your comfort zone in a positive way. You're being forced to communicate with others, work with others, be a bit more sociable, perhaps, you know, come out of your shell. Um, has not being in school proved detrimental to some students maybe a bit younger than you over the last couple of years? Yeah, naturally. I mean, yes, obviously it's had a detrimental effect on everyone's well-being and everyone's social skills. But I think with upper, with sixth years, with, you know, 17 and 18 year olds, they can just sort of bounce back um, because they've developed those skills from having a normal, you know, relatively normal first few years in school. But when you're looking at, at you know, you were saying first years, these children haven't had a normal school year since P5. You know, that's almost two years, uh, two academic years that have been, you know, almost ruined because um, of lockdowns and because of COVID cases. So these children have, you know, very little social skills compared to what you normally would have. And then they find them in huge schools where they know no one and there's 2,000 people in their gear rather than, you know, 25. Right. Is, there, is there a kind of way to overcome that? Is it about more after school clubs is it about sort of affirmative action in order to try to encourage kids to to sort of develop some of those skills what's is there any way around it or is it just an unavoidable consequence of of the last couple of years i think it, it is a fairly unavoidable consequence to to put it how you said thomas um you know obviously we can bring in these you know encourage them to join extra extracurriculars after school clubs um but you know you can't tell you know 11 and 12 year olds to talk more to other people that they don't know you know <laughs> yeah, it's not it a feasible work, yeah. solution yeah um so yeah i'd say it's just something that has happened that you know we can try to fix but it's you know it's been one of those things where it's unavoidable and i suppose when you get a little bit older as well and we're coming into your, kind of your age group now what, what age are you at the moment 17 17 i mean the last couple of years would have been times when maybe you were doing a bit of work experience looking mm-hmm. at what you wanted to study at university uh, thinking perhaps even about the likes of careers. I suppose mm-hmm. that's an important part of, of, of deciding what degree you want to do. Have you found that a more difficult process because you haven't been able to maybe, I know I know some schools have work experience as part of the curriculum, mm-hmm. uh, informal types of work experience, maybe set up by yourself in the summer, that kind of stuff. Uh, has that been a more difficult hurdle for, for, for kids your age? Yeah, of course it has. I mean, work experience as any um, sort of university applicant will tell you is, it, you know, a, a big bit of your... Uh, personal statement and of your CV and not having that will put us you know at a sort of weaker standing than people you know who have had it in previous years you know the personally for the week that our school set aside for going on work experiences at the end of lower sixth sort of uh, February March time we didn't have that you know we were in a lockdown then so we haven't had um any of this and especially you were saying about knowing what you want to do yes you do a lot of your sort of developing uh in you know the first few years of secondary school but when you're looking at what you want to do for the rest of your life sixth year and gcse's are hugely important for now and down you know what courses you want to do at uni uh what job sector you want to go into and that kind of thing and we've missed out on huge amounts of this mm-hmm. and while i have you here actually morgan i know this is something that, that, that the union is quite interested in as well mm-hmm. this idea of the brain drain young people yeah. your kind of age leaving northern ireland not coming back 
Um, have you thought about your next steps? I suppose you're into the period of time when you would be applying for universities. Yeah, so I I haven't um, sent my application away yet, but uh, most people um, yeah. probably have by now. Um, so I think the brain drain is a, is a hugely important issue. And I think it's such a, a difficult one to tackle because it's not to do with anything in particular. It's to do with the society that, that we have here. So, for example, I'm going to... Personally, I'm, I hope to go to Liverpool next year because uh, they do a course that isn't offered in Northern Ireland. Um, but, you know, aside from that, it's the, as I said before, it's the society that we're making here, you know, especially, you know, if there's people here that their rights haven't been accepted, they haven't uh, legally been allowed to marry, can't adopt, can't donate blood until, you know, very, very recently. And we're what going asking ourselves, why are they not staying in the country? You know, I'm one of the few that want to come back after university. I know I want to live in Northern Ireland, but a lot of people want to get out of here as fast as they can. And I, can't I suppose that's the problem, them. isn't it? Because there's nothing particularly negative about students going to universities across the UK. Yeah. It seems entirely reasonable that people would do that. The problem is, you know, getting them back. Yeah, I think and one huge factor of it as well is the cap that universities have uh queens and ulster on how many students from northern ireland uh can have offers to these universities and again we're asking ourselves why do we not have people staying in northern ireland when we're physically stopping them from going to university here Mm -hmm. okay well morgan we'll have to dive into the brain drain in much more detail another time thank you so much for coming in cheers thomas thank you president of the secondary students union of northern ireland morgan shuttleworth this is the scoop on sunday the time is 14 minutes past eight well that is us for this week thank you so much to all my guests for coming on and giving me their time tonight a thank you to the team here at the scoop dara emma hebe and odrin remember you can follow the scoop on facebook on instagram and on twitter follow our five weekday podcasts and check out the online newspaper and i'll see you back here very soon for the scoop on sunday thank you so much for your company this evening the night <laughs>